This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bitesize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Martin Wilson welcoming you to this Bite Size Bio web seminar, which today is sponsored by Arevis. Arevis is a market-leading software company focused in life sciences. With a broad product portfolio, their solutions address both industry and academic environments. Arevis offers software solutions for the interactive visualization and analysis, especially of very large image data in microscopy. Adaptable, forward-thinking, collaborative, and easy-to-handle solutions are foci of Arevis's future-facing development goals. Today's presentation is titled Your Guide to Complete and Fast 3D Image Analysis in Microscopy and is being presented by Dr. Chris Sugates from Arevis. Chris Sugates is an application engineer at Revis. He started in imaging 20 years ago as an application scientist and project manager in Raman-based imaging systems, where he took a particular interest in Raman-SEM correlation. Then, after training as a developmental neurogeneticist, he ran one of the first truly industrial-scale imaging projects in modern brain science. He appreciates the difficulties of imaging at scale and endeavours to help Arevis's customers get the best possible results from massive, challenging image sets. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Chris at the end. The recording of the webinar will be available at bit.ly forward slash 3D image analysis webinar, all one word and lowercase. So now, over to you, Chris, for the presentation. Hi, everybody. This is Chris. Uh, when, when you say that I appreciate the problems of image analysis, I'll phrase that another way. I feel all of your pain. Um, today, we're going to present to you a guide to complete and fast 3D analysis in microscopy. And as many of you know from working with uh, working with imagery, um, something like a complete guide to to analysis is a bit uh, ambitious for a one-hour presentation. But I think today what we'll endeavor to do is take a few steps together forward, and I'll show you um, some some of uh, the tips and tricks that uh, I use for. Um, performing 3D image analysis, and uh, hopefully in the future we can take more steps together. So the first thing I wanna say is image analysis is, is, is everywhere. It's something we do all the time. In fact, I just did it 30 minutes ago. I went downstairs to, to have a bit of a snack and in the refrigerator, there are two kinds of yogurt. There's this really sugary yogurt that my wife likes, and there's this really good Greek yogurt that I like. And of course, I instantly can recognize visually the uh, the, the my kind of yogurt, and uh, I can pick it pick it up immediately. And it's this kind of um, uh, categorization and understanding of things in the visual space that we're endeavoring to do in science with our data. So, image analysis. 
uh, it helps us gain insights about the scientific materials that we work with. And image analysis software is pretty special. It enables us to record uh, not only these data, but it enables us to record the things that we find in the data. And it also helps us to focus in on specific objects and maybe even um, ponder them for, for some time. So you may uh, want to study some object in your image. Um, maybe one day you don't have an idea about, about what, what this is or how you could analyze it, but maybe on another day you do. And software gives you the ability to, to hold on to it, come back to it another day. It also gives you a way to easily compare uh, mathematically, algorithmically, these different kinds of objects that you see in, in the image. And then, of course, as scientists, what we want to do is we want to make abstractions about, about these objects, come up with general principles and descriptions about these objects and standard ways uh, of, viewing, of viewing them and come up with new theories. So our, our visual system and brain is really good at, uh, you know, at parsing out all of this information around us. And nowadays we, we have instrumentation that is helping us to see even more about the world around us. And um, this is in the form of a very high resolution um, imaging systems that capture the tiniest of objects the fastest moving, uh, moving objects. And now we'll be able to see things that we could never before see. Um, I really like to, to go to this example in the history of science. I think we can learn so much uh, about what we do from, from the Copernican revolution. And I think it applies in the, in the realm of software, uh, how software can help us as well. So, very briefly, we have this, this guy, Tycho Brahe, who builds really the best instruments uh, of the time for collecting the most accurate measurements in the heavens at the time. And this is like what the imaging um, system manufacturers are doing for us these days. They're building these amazing instruments. And also, we're, we're having um, these wonderful advances in, in histology and tissue clearing. And so now we can apply the latest histology and these, these powerful instruments and we collect the observations. And what Tycho did was collected these observations, compiled them in the Rudolphine tables. And because these observations were, were very um, accurate and trusted and collected in the Rudolphine tables, this enabled Johannes Kepler to later come sit down with the data in the tables and discover the ellipse and change the way we view view our universe and this the desire to explore and discover these are these are the basic des desires of of all of us and especially as scientists and software is enabling us to take this to to another level and so how does how how does it happen well Number one, we start with the instrumentation that creates the imagery. And nowadays, as I said, we're seeing smaller and smaller objects, more and more resolution, um, more complete views of, uh, 
of the material that we're interested in studying. And we're seeing data coming from many, many different places. So in microscopy, we're seeing, uh, we see data coming from light sheet, confocal, two photon, live cell imaging, structured illumination, super resolution microscopy, and electron microscopy. And now we're like, we're bathed in, in all of these, these gorgeous images and we need to extract the information from the images. And we're really set up in science now, and we have been for, for a little while, to really scale up our imaging and image analysis efforts. And by scaling up, some really special things happen. So one is, let's, let's, think, about, um, let's think about the case where we, we have a very high quality histology, really advanced cell targeting and, and uh, imaging instrumentation. And now in this case, we're, we're able to see the morphology of, of all the cells inside of a brain. Well, nowadays, our imaging systems are so fast and produce, yeah, they produce much, much data very, very quickly at very high resolution. We're able to do this kind of imaging at scale. So now we're able to look across many, many organisms and do comparisons. And by doing these comparisons, we start to gain new insights. So one is we start to find different cell types. We're able to categorize all of these things we see. We start to see statistical phenomena, things that are, are happening some percentage of the time. Um, and we're able to do correlations between something like behavior and anatomy. Also, occasionally we're finding these needles in a haystack. So as we're imaging thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of samples, we're seeing very, very rare phenomena, very, very rare and interesting phenomena. Then also, even within one uh, organism, within one tissue, we're able to understand the relationships and the connections between the cells at a resolution that just was not possible before. And then finally, we're able to look at these images over time and begin, begin to assemble how these uh, organisms develop, how these cells move, move through time. So let's have a look at some of the basic problems of, of image analysis, and we'll start to see how image analysis can help us to extract the information from the images that we need that we need so let's look at so here's a here's a very basic detection scheme so our imaging instrumentation works basically like this we have something like pixels so in this case we have nine pixels and these pixels are capable of detecting some event in the real world and we have the case of this worldly glowing object and if we place this worldly glowing object in, in front of this array of pixels, it will trigger some, some reaction in this pixel in the middle. And now we can represent this event uh, in the computer. So now we can digitize what we're seeing in the world. And this is very, very powerful and very, very special. So now we're able to store and hold on to the data, apply powerful mathematical tools to the data, come back to the data at, at later time and ponder it as at our convenience. But we have, um, we have a problem. We represent we represent this event as as ones and zeros inside of a machine, and and because our insert um, imaging instrumentation is getting better and better, now we're able to collect more and more pixels. So now we we collect arrays of pixels, very large arrays of pixels, and in addition, uh, these imaging instrument instruments. Um, are very good at detecting very subtle changes in the intensity of these objects, which means typically they have 
uh, like a dynamic range that's better than the range of our eyes. Our eyes are very good at distinguishing many, many colors, but our eyes are not as good as these instruments at detecting these very subtle differences in intensity. And so um, one of the basic problems we have is how do we, how do we take a, a data set that's so rich in terms of its, the intensity value and uh, examine it easily? And then an, another basic problem, and probably, yeah, all of us are, are dealing with this uh, nowadays, and probably why you, why you attend the seminar, is the 3D problem. So, oh, sorry about that. We have the 3D problem. So now, not only do we collect very, very large arrays of pixels, two-dimensional arrays, now we collect really large three-dimensional arrays. And of course, we like to now collect three-dimensional array, arrays over time. So how do we deal with um, all of this information? How do we explore it and, uh, and extract information from it? And this is, of course, um, what, what software's, software can help us with. And uh, I think probably one of the core, uh, yeah, really the core issue uh, with image analysis is how do we take what we see with our own eyes and in our own mind and how do we mathematically um, yeah, encode this in the machine so that we can share these procedures with other people? So let's look at this example. So here's an example of where we have some, uh, we have an image, it's quite small, and the pixels have been scaled so that we can see some, some objects in the image. And these happen to be objects of interest. And if we do something like, say we're interested in understanding the, the volume, the size of these objects, we can do something very simple, like um, use an intensity threshold to define a border around the objects, which in some cases, this is completely fine. But in this case, it's not completely fine, because if, if we study the image very carefully, what we, what we know, what the experienced person knows is there are really three objects here that need to be studied. And the question is how do we capture these three individual objects and measure their properties? And for that, we need something more uh, sophisticated than a simple intensity threshold. So uh, let's discuss some, some concepts of solutions. Uh, so how can software help us to, to overcome some, some of the challenges? So one thing is now we have lots and lots of data, right? We have lots of pixels and we have lots of files. And one thing that software can do for us is it can simply <laughs> provide a file and data structure that makes sense. So the images can be stored as a file. The results that we uh, compute on the image, say these boundaries around the objects, can be stored as files, settings, and shortcuts. And the analysis recipes can also be sort of, uh, stored as um, files. And these things, we would like them to be in our control. We would like to know where they are. And we'd like them to be associated in a way that, that makes sense to us. And this is no small, I think this is no small uh, issue to discuss because I think nowadays a lot of us, we're, we're using our, our cell phone, we have these apps. The apps just are doing things and we don't really know what they're doing. There's files being, you know, going to the cloud, going locally, and we don't really know much about the files. But in science, we really need to know where do the data live because we need to come back to it and, uh, we need to potentially perform algorithms that um, depend on you know, where these things sit, on what kind of hardware they sit. And so we want to have control over, over where the files are. Two is that 
um, we need a multi-scheme exploration of the images. So as we saw, the imaging instruments can, can have dynamic range greater than our eyes. So at least in the software, we want to be able to examine these various intensity values. We also want to be able to move through the planes seamlessly. We very much like to represent these, these arrays of pixels as volumes and make them, you know, make them appear as they, as they appear in the real world. And we'll come back to that later. We also want to be able to look through these images through time. And in addition, we would like to be able to apply colors and various enhancements to the, to the data sets. And of course, as we get results, as we capture the objects in the images, we want to be able to see those results really right on the, on the voxels themselves. Um, thirdly, um, in some cases, a very simple analysis uh, algorithm can work. So something like an intensity threshold can really give us the border of the object that we're interested in. But this is not always the case. And I think what we need is um, we need the ability to combine various operators together in customized ways in order to extract, extract uh, what we need from an image. And so we need, we need a very flexible uh, analysis uh, tools. And finally, uh, we want to have, I think, it's very important that we have worldly experiences with our images. So we want to move from the ones and the zeros, and we want to take, take those, these high resolution data and we want to give them back to our brain sort of in the way that we're used to dealing with it. So as you're, you're prepping the tissue in the lab, you're working with the organism on a day-to-day -day basis, and um, you're familiar with, you're used to seeing it a certain way, and perhaps you want to understand the relationships of the objects that exist inside of the tissue. And so we want to be able to reconstruct it in a real world way. And um, this, I think, pro provides us with more information about the image and can really help us to start to decipher the three-dimensional spatial relationships uh, between the objects and the images. And um, here's just a, a, a quick example of, here's a, a bunch of 2D, 2D slices. And here's what happens when we begin to um, make various kinds of projections of these 2D slices. So we, we take the many, many slices and we start to build something that makes sense with us. And we have lots of uh, different techniques to provide ever more information uh, about the relationships between the objects. And I think this is, I really think this is an important topic and I hope that we, we could talk about this in a, in a future, future webinar. And then um, with the, with the visualization techniques, we can do things like really open up an image. So in this case, we have some neurons and they're labeled with a fluorescent dye and they have a very, like a solid, a solid appearance, but using some, um, some direct volume rendering tricks, we can render the raw data in a way that really opens the image and, and enables us to go inside of it and explore it and really begin to see and feel the, the relationships, the three-dimensional relationships between the objects. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. And of course, this has a, this has a wow effect, and I think we all, <laughs> many of us appreciate that, and we'd like to have a, maybe get the, um, you know, the picture on the, the cover of, of the journal, but I think this goes beyond wow effect. I think what we do here is we provide more information in a single shot.
So let's really look at some some solutions. Okay, so here's what software is really going to do for, do for us, and we're I'm going to walk you through a couple of different examples. So here here are a couple of a couple of images, and we're going to do some different things with these images. Um, so as as I'm sure you can all see, we have some objects here. So clearly we have some bright pixels here, and we have some dim pixels here, and again. We have some bright object and we have some dim object. And the experienced mind can see, hey, we can see what is there and and may have an idea of exactly what they want to extract from the image. But here's the here's the here's the issue. And I think many of you uh, run into run into this. And it is, reminds me of the quote from from Tolstoy's famous novel, Anna Karenina. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. I think this applies exactly to images. So I think the ones that are happy and easy to under, uh, easy to analyze mathematically and algorithmically and at scale, they're all alike. It's all, they don't have optical artifacts. They have extremely little noise. There's perfect contrast around all the objects of interest. And each, each other kind of image, <laughs> each challenging image is challenging completely in its own way. And I think we, all run into this problem from time to time where we sit down with our image and we start to we have a concept of how we may want to grab this object or grab this this object and we start to apply algorithmic approaches and they fail for some reason because there's some optical problem there's some standing artifact or something like that and i think um, we need to have a very flexible solution to do this but the first thing we need to do is we need to be able to move through these images and do what I call scouting for the truth. So we have to be able to move through the planes, move through the volumes and find these, these regions of truth, these objects that we know they really exist and we really wanna grab them in a certain way. And then we also have to be able to find the problems. And once we find the, the truthful objects and we find the problematic objects, then we can really build uh, an analysis um, paradigm for, for that image. So let's let's have a quick look at some of these uh, some of the paradigms. So one is we'll start very simple. So uh, we have of course the image with these two 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 little let's they're blobs for now. What do you call them blobs? And we can scale scale this image in a couple of ways. And if we scale it so that these appear quite bright, we can see that there's quite a bit of uh, yeah there's bright pixels. But we know at least I know and I think probably. A majority or all of you know that there's nothing here there's at least there's probably probably nothing here this is real and this is not and if we try to do something simple like use the intensity uh intensity based threshold to grab these objects what happens well we get we get the objects but we get lots of other things that we don't want and this is really a problem okay so this is especially a problem for when when the images are really, really big. Because what happens now is we have to devote resources. We have to devote our computing resources to dealing with all of these objects. Of course, we can later on do something like filter out all the small objects and keep the big objects. But what does it mean? It means we have to do some computation. So how could we, how could we skip this? How could we apply a simple filter to the image and solve the problem? So here's here's a simple idea, and I think probably a lot of a lot of you do do something like this. So we can take it take the raw data, and we can compute uh, the mean. So we can just 
we can, within a, a radius of one pixel for every every pixel in the image, we can compute the mean value and we write it back onto the, uh, you know, into the computer. And then we then we grab the borders of the objects. And what happens? Well, things become very smooth. We lose all of these non-interesting objects and we keep we keep these objects. So I think this is this is probably something that's uh, filtering is is something we'll people in image analysis do do quite quite commonly. Here's something that's oh this, so this is also filtering, and then we'll then we'll move on to maybe a bit more of an advanced uh, something a bit more advanced. So here's a here's a case where we have uh, we have objects in a cell, and these objects are associated with the with the cytoskeleton of the cell, and we may want to do something like grab the cell because we want to we want to begin to compute the number of things in the cell. So we want to understand cell by cell. Uh, phenomena. And what happens is if we try to do something like an intensity threshold, we, we yes, we kind of start to get the border of the cell based on, based on sort of this out of plane uh, light here. And we also get these sort of, uh, yeah, lots of background objects. And so I show you here, we're getting background objects. We kind of get the border, what is roughly the border of the cell. And this may be good enough in, in some cases, but in, in some cases, maybe it's not. So what happens if we reduce the intensity threshold? Well, if we come in with a lower intensity threshold, we get less of these objects out the, outside the cell. But because this staining is very like um, uh, punctated, then we start to see these like openings in the cell. And it, it, that prevents us from really being able to grab the cell's morphology based on this uh, punctate staining. You might be asking yourself, well, why would you why would you try to grab the cell based on you know a, a stain like this? And the reality is is we just don't always have the luxury of of using exactly the uh, the the histology that we want. And a lot of times we're looking at the data uh, later on and we're thinking, oh, I have a great idea. If I can grab this cell, then I can do some kind of cell by cell analysis. And you're sort of thinking after the fact, um, what can I do to get the most out of out of the image, right? So, uh, and here's a case where we've re reduced the intensity threshold quite a bit, and now the cell is completely broken. So, what I do in cases like this is, um, well, there's a couple things we can try. So, one is we can try a different filtering idea. So, we could try something like median, very aggressive median filtering. And what would happen in that case is the image becomes it becomes a bit more smooth, and we begin to be able to grab the outline of the cell. Um, but there's a couple of things. Um, it's, it's approximately correct, but it can be quite time consuming because in this case, we have to compute this um, with a very large radius. And this takes, takes up a lot of computational time. And when I see cases like this, um, I start to think about motifs. And motifs for me um, are, these are just little combinations of operations that work in certain cases. And uh, I'm still learning uh, motifs. I, you know, every week I, I sit down with a customer and I'm, we're discovering some new analysis motif that we can apply to other images. And here's a case where I would use a very, a, a, quite a simple motif. So one thing I would do is I would take, take the image and first of all, do an intensity threshold. So binarize it. So say only the pixels above a certain value are going to, are going to, uh, they're going to exist and have a value and all the ones pixels that are below the value, now they become com completely, become zero. And then what I would do is I would close these up. So I would basically do an operation that 
dilates uh, dilates these little these puncta, and where they join each other, they stay joined after an erosion. And now what we get is something, yeah, I, I, it, it's starting to look more accurate. We're following the contour of the real the real thing that we see in the image, and that's what's really important, right? We don't want to generate some kind of fake result. We want our uh, the borders around the objects to really um, snug up, hug real objects in the image. And so this morphology motif, which is basically it's it's a mixture of opening and closing. It removes, it preserves clusters. So it keeps all of these ones that are very close together. They're preserved, but these little loners disappear. Very, very powerful motif. And then finally, we want to do things like we want to grab the objects and we want to study the objects. And sometimes grabbing the objects is not so easy. So in this case, we have uh, two, two nuclei and they're butted right up against each other. And we, we need something a little bit more advanced to, to grab these as individual objects. And so in this case, we might do something like a watershed to split the two objects. And so we, we model their morphology by doing a bit of a blur. We seed the objects and then we put a watershed between them. And then finally, we want to do something like uh, understand their distributions. So how many objects are in this cell? How many are objects in, in, in these cells? So let's, uh, oh, before we, before we really look at the, you know, the, how the software works, this is how I see analysis. So I don't really see analysis as a series of steps. I see analysis as a series of cycles. So that means we sit down with our image and we scout around. We find these regions of, of truth or happiness, and we find these other regions of untruth or unhappiness. And we come up with ways to filter, denoise, and apply motifs. And these help us get objects of interest. And then we might sort, sift, and examine the objects of interest. And then if our images are really, really large, we may, or we have many, many images, we want to move on to other portions of the image. And that means we're gonna apply this um, cycle to a different portion of the image. And we may find um, some other regions where this fails. And so we wanna cycle through again, and we want to build analysis pipelines that work, not just for one or two or three regions, but we want to optimize so that we get the most reliable, high quality results from our images. So I want to take you all into the real software environment and show you how you might do these things in practice. So I'm gonna use uh, Vision 4D for this. And what we'll do is we'll look at, look at a simple example and we'll, then we'll move on to, to this motifs example. So here's a very simple, simple example. So um, let's just have a quick look. This is the obvious stuff. You want to be able to, of course, scan through the planes, scan, scan, scan through time, toggle, toggle things off and on, right? So we might want to toggle a channel off that we're not particularly interested in, in working on at the time. We might want to change the colors. And these things, you want to be able to do them very, very smoothly, very, very intuitively. And then that's what we can do in this environment. And now we look at this image and we know that it has some, some sort of, uh, this is like salt and pepper, and we want to remove it. And how do we remove it? Well, what we can do is we can begin to apply uh, various filters. How the heck would you know what filter to apply ahead of time? So there's two ways. One is you can go to the literature, study, uh, talk to your colleagues, 
and and really begin to make a real study of, of image analysis and become an expert in image analysis. If you're like me, I haven't spent my life doing image analysis. So for me, I just need to try things and see what works. This is exactly how I work with the, with an image like this. So I would open up some uh, filtering tools. I might, um, I might know I want to try denoising. And then I know that lots of people compute the compute Gaussian blurs very, very frequently. And I might compute a Gaussian blur and just have a look and see what does it do. Here's, here's what we see after, here's what we see before. And what I see is it's not removing the, the salt and pepper noise for me. And so I might just want to try something different, not even knowing what a mean or a median or a Gaussian does. I can begin to work with this image. And now I can see I'm preserving the border of the thing that I'm interested in. And I've really reduced significantly the stuff that I'm not interested in. And now I can come in and just touch on the image and start to grab, grab various objects. And I can parameterize an intensity threshold interactively. And I think this interaction with the imagery is really, really important to the cycle of optimizing, uh, optimizing analysis pipelines. So let's have another, a look at, a, at another example. This is pretty, I, I like this one a lot. So we have this absolutely gorgeous, uh, gorgeous image here. We've got multiple colored channels and we can, we can explore through the planes and we see it's, it's absolutely beautiful. We see there's some uh, chromatin material is labeled in blue. We see something labeled in red, which I would presume is something associated with the cytoskeleton. We see uh, a bunch of little green dots. These are these are associated with uh, with proteins on the on the chromatin that are involved in the uh, in the splitting of the cells. And um, let's let's just have a quick quick exploration of the of the image. So one way to explore it is of course to move through the planes, but another way is to really look at it in 3D. So we say, okay, let's enable a, a three dimensional view of the image, and now we have we can control the opacities and the transparencies of the various color channels. If we want to, we can toggle, toggle channels off. So maybe we all only want to look at the chromatin. Uh, uh, perhaps we want to look at the entire sort of cell, cellular morphology. Perhaps we want to really sort of begin to open up the image a little bit and be able to sort of see through the, through condensed chromosomes. So we can, we can begin to explore the image in the volume space and, for me, this gives me ideas about how I want to uh, to attack the analysis of this image. So, let me give you uh, a couple of examples of how uh, how we might uh, analyze an image like this. So, uh, in this um, software environment, I have access to any portion of the image at any time I, I want. And one thing I did was I went and took for the purposes of the webinar. I took I picked a cell. I, I thought, okay, I, I think it would be, uh, you know, a good idea to show you guys how we, you know, how we apply these morphology morphology motifs. So, I just grabbed a small portion of one of the cells, and so we could, I could really walk you through how I would uh, apply and parameterize this morphology motif that we talked about before. And what I did was I actually stored, uh, I stored the operation itself uh, in this pipeline tool, and um, I'm going to walk you through it, but I'll walk you through it in sort of the way that, um, in hopefully in like a natural way. 
I don't want to just press a magic button and show you, hey, look, it magically works. I want to show you how I would really work with something like this. So I would typically, uh, I would focus on a region of the image like this where I see, I clearly see what I want to see. I, I want this border. I want to get it. And I have an idea about how to get it. And I would begin to parameterize an intensity threshold. And I would really come in and do this interactively. I would try different things. I would try low, low intensity values. I would try high, high values, so try like 2000, probably the whole thing would disappear. Let's see. Yeah, we have a little bit, a little bit left. And I would zero in uh, iteratively on the one that I think is gonna, gonna work for me. And then when I'm happy with it, I would compute it. And then I would move on to the next step. And the next step in this case would be to, to start to close up, to sort of button up all of these, these, open, these open portions of the image. And again, we can do the same thing. We can close you know, very, very lightly. We could close very, very aggressively, like so. And this, the more aggressively we close, of course, the more, the more computational time it takes. But this is how I would begin to build, build this idea of, of um, closing up the borders of the cell. And then finally, uh, I like to do, do the, oh, not finally, but the next step is I would do some opening and I would try to remove all of these tiny objects. And as you can see with, with the opening set with this, this radius of two, I can simply remove the objects. So you might ask yourself, well, how, do you, how would you find all of these? Well, they're all organized, they're all organized in the menu here. So I can try different ideas, be a drag and drop. So I drag in denoising filters, I drag in morphology filters, and I drag them out. So they just go in and out and I parameterize very, very quickly. And then finally, I might come to the point where I've opened it up, I've removed the tiny objects, I've got a, a pretty nice border of the cell. And then finally, I might wanna do something like fill the hole. So then finally we fill the hole and I might wanna do one last round. So I love to optimize. So an environment like this is really, uh, yeah, I, I love this kind of environment because I can continue to optimize and add more operators. So if you look at my pipeline, at the core, it's something like, you know, closing, opening and closing, but I, I add extra operators to re refine, 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 because I want to get as close to truth as possible. I, I just don't want a, a fake result. And so what I get is something, you know, I'm starting to approach something, something that I would yeah, something approximately true or truer than I would get with something like a simple denoising. So let me move on to another example. So this is this is the watershed example. So let me uh, I'm gonna find my little my little pipeline and show you guys how I how I did this one. So we go to this this guy. And so here are those here's a little a tiny portion of those green objects. Uh, in the cell. And so here we can move through the planes. And of course, if we want to examine it in as a volume, we can examine it as a volume. And in fact, let's just go ahead and do that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do something a little bit, uh, yeah, let's say fancy. And I'm going to enable, I'm going to do a split a split view so I can have the, the data, the raw data rendered uh, in this window. And I've got the two-dimensional result rendered in this window. And just as a note, I think it's very important uh, for me, I like to parameterize all of my analysis pipelines with a 2D view because I want to see the raw pixel. I don't want to see the rendered rendered pixel. I really want to see its, its raw value. And what we do in this case is something pretty simple. So let's find, there is a case in, in, this, uh, in, this, 
in this sample that I want to show you. So this is the case here. It's a case where you've got two hot blobs and you, you want to grab them as individual objects. And this is where something like a watershed comes in really, really quite handy. So you could do something like drop in an intensity threshold and you could try to parameterize it like this. I hope you guys can see that where you sort of, you, you make it very restrictive. So you just grab the core of the objects. But what happens in this case is as you look through more and more of the image, you're losing objects of interest and you don't want to do that. So what happens is, is that after you've tried this, uh, this idea and you find that it doesn't work, you say, aha, I can try something like watershed. And so we have an operator in Vision 4D called the Blob Finder, which does exactly what it says. It's very good at finding the blobs. So it finds these hot, hot spots and it splits them. And then what I can do is compute it. And then once I compute it, aha, let's do something a little bit more fancy. Let's see if we can, uh, let's see if we can show the annotations. Well, let's, let's first, let me first show you the annotations here. So, boom, boom, boom. All right, there they go. So now we've we've created real objects, okay? And let's say we're interested to see where is this object in 3D. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to link these to the two viewers so that when I click on an object over here, so I'm going to find those that little split. So if I click on an object here, I should see that object highlighted over here. And let's make it a little easier for us to see what, what, what we see. So let's go ahead and maybe put a bounding box around it. And so here is this object that we see over here. And here, let's click on this one, is this object over here. And so by, by, uh, by parameterizing this operator and viewing it in the 2D mode and the 3D mode, we can begin to approach um an ever more truthful representation of all of these blobs in the in the image so let's move to to another example so let's go back to to the whole thing oh or to the well not the whole thing let's go back to the to this guy so this cell so now we're really looking at the cell okay we're going to look at it in in three dimensions and what i've done is i've already computed let's go back i need to go backwards Okay, and we're gonna just move over back to the cell. And what I've done is I've already computed a bunch of stuff. So I've computed the border. I've used this little motif to compute the border of the cell. And I also used the, a similar motif to compute the border of all the chromatin in the cell. And I found something pretty interesting. So I found that there's actually two groups of chromatin uh, in the cell. So there's, there's sort of this, this large there's this large group and there's this small group. And by using these analysis tools, what I was able to do is find the small group all by itself and find the large group all by itself. And what does this set us up to do? Well, it sets us up to do something like count. We could count these um, uh, centromere associated objects inside of here. So let's just do this. Let's do this quickly. So what we could do is we could take um, Let's take our small, this small chromatin object, and let's let's name let's name this the small uh, chromatin object. And then what we could do is give 
the pipeline, all of those bright green objects. So we have we have lots and lots of bright green objects. There's maybe 5,000 of these bright green objects in the in the um, image, and we could do something like object-based co-localization. So we could take this small chromosome chromosome uh, chromatin object, and we could use it as a reference. So we take the small one, we use it as a reference, and then we could take these green objects as a subject set. And we could say we want to report all of the, say, objects, all the green objects that are completely covered inside of the chromatin object. And so that's exactly what we get. And so now we can go to our, our 3D view. And now what we've done is we've pulled the chromatin are, are these uh, centromere associated objects that are inside the small the small group. So let's go, let's leave the leave the environment. And let's sort of you know review review a little bit about it. So in the environment, what we have is a completely modular design. So um, we have modules for bringing the files in. I didn't show you this part because it's pretty boring. It's you drag the file onto the desktop and it's in the environment. But we did start to look at, of course, the viewers. So we we're able to view the data in the 2D mode. We we're able to view it in the 3D mode. We we're able to view our results in a table and we have controls so we can Turn, turn the image, we can move through the planes, we can use a little dropper tool to parameterize our intensity thresholds. We have a, a, a results database that's computing features of the, of the results for us that we can utilize. We didn't talk about transformations, but these are quite powerful. So transformations and corrections, like drift correction and bleach correction, all of these sort of things exist in a module. We saw this, so this is these are all of our analysis tools. So this is a whole multitude of operations, filters, morphology, uh, previews, it's completely logical. We, you saw how we were, I, I name, renamed some of the operators for small chromatin or large chromatin. Uh, and then finally we have a storyboarding tool which enables us to create the movies. But the, the thing about this modular design is that we can really customize and move easily. And I, I think that this is, this is, at least for me, the most important, the most important thing when it comes to image analysis, I need to be able to move through the images and move through different operations to figure out what the answer is going to be, because it's just not always obvious from the raw data, how you're going to get to the final answer. So nowadays, I already mentioned these imaging instruments are pr producing ever more data, more resolution, uh, more more time, not only in you know X, Y, and Z, but also in time. And so the amount of data is really exploding. And so what does it mean? It means the size of the data sets are bigger than the size of the computer. So I think nowadays we have, yeah, we're working on workstations that have something like 500 gigabytes of RAM or one terabyte of RAM. But what do we see routinely? Images that are 10, 10 terabytes and above. So these images are far bigger than the size of the computer. And what happens when you use your computer to hold all of your data? Your computer become, can become unstable. And so what we wanna do is we, wanna, we sought to address the gap between uh, 
between your processing needs and the computer size. And so what Arevis did, which which is not unique to Arevis, but I think the way that we do it is pretty special, is that we, we create a redundancy-free data structure and it makes efficient use of the system resources. So it doesn't, we don't have to touch the RAM, okay? So your computer can remain stable and then we can give information to RAM when we need to and when, when we want to. And the Arevis file format, which is called SIS, gives you access to any portion of the image at any resolution, at any time, point of time, um, any region of interest inside the image for any kind of operation. So we can take uh, any little uh, three-dimensional, two-dimensional, 3D over time portion of the image and give it to various operators and very rapidly build um, build analysis pipelines and workflows. Very, very important for large, large data because um, the last thing that any of us want to do is waste waste our time. We do not want to try to compute via some approach that's going to fail. We want to know that it's going to work. And so SIS gives you the ability to check, to make sure that, to number one, figure out what's your idea, what's your analysis idea, and then secondly, is it really going to work? Is it worth to apply to the whole image? So um, I think about, if I take a big step back, uh, and I look at, okay, what are all the resources that we need in this day and age to investigate really big data sets? And a lot of you are probably here because you have this problem. You have ginormous images and you need to be able to work with them efficiently. So one thing is, of course, minimal, minimal obstacles. And what does that mean? It means, well, you want to work on any hardware. You don't want to have to go somewhere where you have to wait for a special machine or special hardware. So you'd really like to, to work from anywhere. And I'll tell you right now, I'm sitting at a laptop computer. I work 99% of the time from a laptop computer, even with absolutely ginormous images, I will put the data on a drive and plug it into the laptop computer. So out of convenience, and I'll work on an airplane. Okay, so you wanna be able to work any anywhere you want, um, in your lab, at home, uh, in, in a, on a workstation that's very, very powerful, anywhere you want to go, you want to be able to go there. Um, you want stable stable access to the data, so you don't want to crash. And this is one of the things that when I'm out interacting with our customers, I find this to be one of the things that really irritates them. When they, not, not about our software, <laughs> by the way, it's just in general something that they don't want to deal with, and that's why they come to us, okay? They invest lots of time in working on their images, and building some kind of analysis uh, a pipe pipeline or paradigm and then they're having problems with software stability and so they come to us and they say hey can you help can you help me with this because it's really frustrating me and so what we endeavor to do at Arevis is build a very stable platform and one of the reasons why it's stable is because it's it's not going to eat your entire computer okay but there are other reasons too but it's it's quite quite a stable platform uh, you also want to be able to work with the data immediately. You don't want to be locked out of the software. And this is one of the things that our developers uh, take very seriously. They they try to build the software in a way that enables you to, to not only work as soon as the data is there, but also to continue to interact with it while you're running um, various operations. So typically, you, you might start on a little operation, but you have another idea, and you want to try that idea. And so 
Vision 4D software, uh, we try not to lock you out of the software. We, we want to enable you to express yourself on your images and continue to think even while your computer is thinking. And then flow of information is extremely important. You want a rich visualization of the data and you want to see the results right on the, on the data volumes. Rich visualization means uh, options for making this object look real based on the raw data take the raw data and give you information so you can see what you need to see and we want to see your results right on the data. We also want to give you natural experiences with the 3D data. This means not only natural controls with your with your keyboard and your mouse, but it also means uh, natural using the latest technology like VR technology to let you reach into an image and touch it and interact with it. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, we also want you to be able to publish your results and we want, we want you to take the beautiful images that you've you've created and make a spectacular image and by spectacular I mean information rich you want to put a panel in the in the paper or on the cover of the of the journal that conveys as much information as possible to to the readers also we're we're uh, we spend quite a bit of time and we're very interested in building web interfaces and collaborative workflows. So we also have tools, which we didn't look at today. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about it, but we have tools for enabling you to interact with these SIS files completely via the web and in a completely collaborative way. And I think we all agree that that's, that's really important in this day and age, and it's gonna become ever more important. And then finally, we have this very flexible computational tool set. And we really just started to scratch the surface of that today. But uh, in my view, the, the important thing is that you need to be able to do rapid prototyping. And rapid means, um, it means that you just need, you gotta click, you wanna be able to click around and get your ideas into the computer without writing lines of code. And I think that uh, although you can, if you want to in a Revis, extend a Revis by, by doing some, some more advanced things like writing, writing code, um, for the most part, you can navigate the Revis environment in a very uh, easy way with a mouse and the keyboard. So we at Arrivas, we're endeavoring to do much more than just this uh, you know, standard uh, experience with the data where you sit down at the computer and you sort of move through the planes and you, you, ex you parameterize a pipeline. We really want you to be able to move through the data in a way that uh, it's very easy. You're seeing everything you need to see. It's very interactive and sort of a continuous flow of experience. And we wanna connect you with your collaborators, with other people. We want you to be able to share your results very easily. Uh, and we want you to be able to work together. And so the way we, the way we endeavor to do this is, well, we're trying to build future facing tools. So we, we imagine that you could store your data anywhere you want. You can have it, you could store it on the cloud, you could store it on a local server, you can store it on your local machine. And then what we enable you to do is through our environment, access it via desktop devices. You can even do it on mobile devices. Don't, don't tell our developers, but I really do that. I, I use, sometimes I access the, the data that we hold uh, on the web in the browser on my telephone. And then also you might want to plug in and use the latest virtual reality tools to, uh, to analyze the data. And I'm gonna just very, very briefly, just give you a little taste of what we have coming in, the v in VR and in the collaborative workflows. Uh, and, and, then we'll, and then we'll wrap it up. But I think this stuff is pretty exciting and I, I hope that it's a topic for future webinars. So 
Um, in, in the VR space, what you're able to do is really immerse yourself inside the data and you really start to access, you start to do something different. Your brain starts to see more. It, you start to feel it as an environment. And when you can reach out and touch data, you can do things very, very quickly just by touching it. And I wanted to show you guys a really quick example. So um, you can start to solve really hard problems. So this, this is kind of a hard problem. So when we, we get FibSAM data and uh, the customers, our customers want to see certain objects inside of FibSAM, um, I think a lot of people would naturally want to do something like machine learning AI and try to train a machine to find it. But it turns out that if you, if you ahead of time, oh, sorry about that. Oh, sorry again. Let me, let me play this. With, with our VR technology, which we call Inviewer, what you can do is you can hold that FibSem volume out in front of you, and you can really slice it up any way you want to. And then what you can do, which is, I think, a very, very powerful motif. So again, this is like a mo motif, but a more advanced kind of motif, is what you can do is you can sculpt over the regions where you know there's something you want. So it's sort of like you, you can target your AI onto certain regions and that makes the problem so much easier for machine learning. So what we do a lot of times is take the volumes, we reach out into the volume, we sculpt right on it. And depending upon how big the volume is, it might be a matter of minutes, it might be a matter of an hour or two, but in the end, after you've sculpted it, then you train your AI on the volume and you get something really nice. Like in this case, we grab, we grab all the collagen. So this is, this is really fun. And then um, just very briefly, we also uh, have a product called the web view. And the web view is, is a way for you to uh, interact with the SIS files and the results completely via the web. And, and, and if you want to in a completely collaborative way. So multiple people access the data and you guys can build and you can apply analysis pipelines to the data. You can do manual uh, sort of like I, what people would call like crowdsource kind of annotations. And then the beautiful thing is that all of these different tools, they all fit perfectly together. So they're all using the Arebus SIS um, file format and they're all, they all plug into each other. So that means that you could build a completely custom uh, imaging imaging workflow in your lab. So this is, this is where we end, but I, I, there's one thing I, wanna, I want to, to share, share with everybody. So when we were preparing the webinar, we were talking about, okay, how do we, how do we introduce this idea of image analysis to everybody? And, and I said something like, you know, image analysis is something we do every day. I just went to Whole Foods uh, last night and like there's a particular kind of whole milk that I like in Whole Foods. And so I'm doing it. I'm walking up to the freezer case or the refrigerator and I'm, I'm picking the milk that I want. And so I thought, okay, how about I just take, I'll go to Whole Foods, which I did uh, last Friday. And I took a picture of the freezer case in, in Whole Foods. And so here it is. And I used Vision 4D and I used, I used a bit of the trainable. So I did, I have to admit, I used, I used trainable, the trainable segmenter and to output sort of a probability image. So I trained it on what's a gallon versus what's not a gallon. So this is something we didn't, didn't really talk about today, but I did that plus I used exactly the morphology motifs that we talked about today, opening and closing to sort of um, solidify those gallons and remove the background objects. And what I did was I trained Vision 4D to do some stuff for me. So I, I trained it first to find 
uh, high probability of, right, let's see. Oh, I have to show the annotations. So I, I trained it to find me objects that were a high probability of being a gallon. And so I found all my gallons. Then I found um, whole, whole milks. So I, I always buy whole milk. So I had it find the whole milks. And then after I had it find the whole milks, I had it find the Whole Foods brand because that's the brand I particularly like. And then the jug that I picked uh, last Friday night was a jug that was in the front and didn't have a dent in it. And so I used the analysis pipeline to find the jug uh, without the dent that was in the front. And I think this is, this is yeah, it's, it's kind of a funny, cute example, but I think this is really what we all wanna do. We, we're looking at our images and we're the experts. We know what's in there. We know what we want to measure. We see the phenomenon. And now we need to capture it because we need to share it with, with, with other scientists. And that's exactly what I did here. I encoded the process that I went through in, in the Arrivas environment. And that's exactly what you want to do uh, with your images. Uh, so I think that's where, where we're ended. So I want to thank you all for, for meeting with us today. It's really my pleasure to speak with you about this. And it's been my pleasure uh, in working with Arrivas for the last almost three years in meeting many of you and sitting down with, with you and working through your image analysis problems. I've learned a tremendous amount and I hope that, that you have too. And I hope that we can continue, continue to work together. And I'll just have to say, it's, a, it's been a real pleasure to work with uh, everybody at Arrivas. Uh, Arrivas uh, really cares about, about delivering uh, a product that's very, very powerful, that provides a very, very high quality of result, but also provides a joyful and high quality experience to you. And then finally, I'd like to thank uh, Nick and Martin for, for working with us on developing uh, the webinar today. And with that, I would be happy to take questions. Thanks, Chris. That was an excellent and thoroughly enjoyable presentation. Um, we have a few questions from the audience. Um, if anyone else has a question, uh, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen. So I've got one here from um, Niraj and they ask, um, in the 2D viewer, um, can you draw an outline around the object of interest? Absolutely. So let's have a look. So I think it's always better to, to really show you, show you how, it, how it happens. So let's, let's have a look together. So we have a tool for, for drawing. Uh, so you can draw different sort of shapes. So you could draw a circle, a square. I would say in most cases, we're doing something like drawing a polyline around an object. So let's let's first simplify let's simplify everything for ourselves. So what I'll do is I'll just sort of I'll hide a couple of channels and I'll even make um, I'm going to make this gray. So hopefully everything shows up uh, appears a little bit more clearly on your screen. So we have a couple ways of doing this, and and the, the two ways that I do it the most is simply to draw a polyline. So I select a tool for adding adding an annotation object to the image. And I just will use this to simply draw, draw the polyline around the object of interest. And I'm gonna take a guess about what your next question would be. I would guess that you, you might ask, could we do this in 3D? And the answer is yes, and there's, there are a couple different ways, but one of the ways that I would tend to do it is I might move to another plane and I might, I might draw uh, another polyline on another plane in this way. And then what I can do is I can interpolate between the two polylines 
to create a three-dimensional object. And so I'd say that's a fairly typical way that we would we would um, outline objects. But there there's another way we could do something like magic wanding. So we have a magic wand tool, and I can parameterize the magic wand. I've got like a tolerance value that I can I can apply, and I can use that to also grab grab the objects uh, in the 2D viewer. Okay, brilliant. Thanks, Chris. Um, I've got a question here from Jan. Um, is the Arebus Vision 4D software compatible with marker-free technologies? Uh, can you repeat? Is the Arebus 4, Vision 4D software compatible with marker-free technologies? Marker-free. I, I, I don't know. i got to admit, I don't know what marker-free is, and it's something I would... Maybe our developers or other application engineers are familiar familiar with this kind of technology. It's unfortunately it's not something that I'm familiar with. So I have to kind of either you have to explain it a little bit to me, or somebody has to explain <laughs> it, or I have to find out from somebody else. Okay, that was the question I got. Um, okay, moving on to the next one. Um, uh, Garima asked um, a question during the live demo of the Arebus Vision 4D. Is it possible to measure the orientation, coherency, and length of the tubulin? Uh, so I would say no. We I, I don't, and uh, yeah, maybe we we have to sort of get get back to you on what we really can do. Um, I would say not definitely not directly. So what we would do is something like, let me show you. Um, if we go to, if I if I go to this, so I, we're going to look at the. So we've got lots of objects. And the objects, we compute lots of different properties for the objects. So we compute things like their their length, their aspect ratio, uh, their position in X, Y, and Z. And we're, I could imagine that we could buy, so all of this information is exportable into the spreadsheet. So we can get all of these computed properties out of Vision 4D. And what I would guess is that in order to do this kind of thing, we would pick certain properties of the, or certain features of these, of the objects, and then we would, um, we would compute that stuff uh, outside of Vision 4D, at least for now. Okay, okay. Um, I have a question here from Paula. Um, she just asked, is it compatible with um, the Zen files from Zeiss? Yeah, so uh, it is, and um, we, we support the import of numerous file formats. And when the files are coming from the big reputable uh, imaging companies like Zeiss, usually these are cases where the import is the absolute easiest. So when the files are coming from, from Zen and from Zeiss, we're able to, uh, they, they share all the information with us about the file format. And then it makes it really easy for us to catch all of the relevant information from their files. So in those cases, in this case, it's it's really as simple as a drag and drop. Okay. Okay. And um, question here from Kathleen: um, Have you done any an analysis on non-fluorescent, non-SEM data such as um, differential interference contrast microscopy? Um, I have personally not uh, done. Oh, I have done. So I have recently done. So I, yeah, the answer is yes. And so okay. 
we we've looked at some so we've looked outside of fluorescent. So I'm gonna I, I want to say the tools in Vision 4D. It's very very comfortable for working with fluorescence images. I say I think we make it pretty easy. Um, with with SEM, I actually still I kind of find it not yeah not too hard to work on on the FibSEM. I think there's certain tools you need for working with these blocks of EM data, but um, that I would like to see in the future in Vision 4D, but it's 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 pretty good. I, I'm really having a, quite a bit of fun with that. With things like um, 3D X-ray data, it's it's a complete joy. So some you know you're working with something like CT, CT imagery or or medical uh, MRI imagery, and that kind of stuff I think is is a complete joy to work in Vision 4D. Um, the DIC stuff, it's a it's a bit more challenging. So I just started to to work with some of these with some time series uh, earlier this year collected uh, in, in DIC. So there's like a wide field or bright field and DIC. And at first it, it was new for me, but I figured out the motifs basically. So I have some ideas and I'd be happy to sit down and, and, and work with you in a web session and show you some of these motifs. But I tend to use um, the trainable, uh, trainable segmentation. So a bit of machine learning and a bit of morphology and a bit of filtering in various motifs in order to catch the cells from the DIC uh, images. And I would say that the pipelines that I had to build were a little bit complicated because the cells were reaching out and touching each other very, very frequently. And so there's just like a big, it's like yeah, spaghetti noodles, you know, all intertwined. And that makes things a little bit more challenging. But um, yeah, I was pretty happy with with the results so i would say yes we can work with dic images and and i'd be happy to sit with you and and uh look at some of the motifs okay um i've got a question here from Oliwakimi. um actually a, a problem where um they're um they've seen artifacts that have been mistaken for um metastases in their samples um will um is it possible that 4D imaging can um, an analysis can can help with that problem? Is it possible to separate artifacts from metastases? Um, yeah, it depends on right. It depends on what's the nature uh, of the artifact. So it's the kind of thing where we want to be able to explore an image like that very very easily, and that's of course what you can you can do in a software like Vision 4D, and we would have to get a sense of you know what is going on here so sometimes we would have a case where the artifacts are it's like an optical sectioning it might be a problem with the the clearing is not uh optimized or the imaging parameters are not optimized and so what you're seeing is sort of some out of plane optical issues and there are some cases where we can uh yeah we can account for that and then yeah. focus just on the on the regions of you know what I consider to be truth. So I would say yes. It just depends on the the images. In the simplest case, it may be that in some optical sections you have a problem, in other optical sections you do not, and you might just simply want to focus just on the optical sections where you don't have the problem, and that way you're not misled. But we should have a look together, and uh, we can figure it out. Okay. Um... Next question here is from Baptiste, and um, they're asking, um, are there any quality control algorithms for the reconstruction of 3D SIM images? Mm, quality control algorithms for, so it, the, let's 
think? What do you want to what do you want to measure? So I would say we don't have a we don't have something like a quality control operation or something like that, but we could do something like build a pipeline that performs some series of operations, grab some objects and reports to you properties of those objects that you could use for quality control. Um, I think one of the first things that I did uh, a couple of years ago was I, I looked at data that was coming out of a very high throughput process. And uh, I was interested to build a pipeline to measure histology artifacts because I was curious about what's the performance of the histology over time. And so I did exactly, you know, something like this. I built like an algorithm that, or I built a pipeline that could grab certain uh, artifacts out of the image. And by counting those in the various data sets, they give me some idea of what's the quality over time. So maybe it would be something similar. It would be some kind of a pipeline that would extract a specific feature in your imagery. Uh, and then we would com compute for you certain features that are important for quality control. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, question here from Esther. And um, she asks, how does the Ariva software interface with existing image capture software provided with the instrumentation? So that's, I, I think we kind of answer, answered that. So it's, uh, in some cases, like in the in the case of the Zeiss, Zeiss instruments, uh, I think most of the time when I'm sitting with a Zeiss customer, I'm finding that the import is is just really, really easy. They're saying, oh, this is a complex image. We've got lots of channels and this and that, and I just drag and drop it and the whole thing is uh, is working perfectly fine. But the the import tool in Arubius Vision 4D, we, we didn't really talk, I didn't talk about this, but the import tool itself, if we, let me just try to fake it. Uh, let me just, I'm going to just grab some random documents and try to fake, fake for you. You know, what might happen if, if you've just got some TIFFs coming off of, you know, any old instrument. So um, let's say you built your own instrument and you're just making TIFFs um, and we're Arivas Vision 4D. Uh, you, you need to assemble them in a certain way. Vision 4D has a very flexible import tool. So it, it, allows you to choose from common scenarios. So in this case, I, I just picked a couple of Z stacks. So they could be TIFFs uh, and then it's asking me, hey, are these, are these, uh, should all these Z stacks be assembled as a bunch of planes on top of each other? Should they be assembled as time series? Should each one, does each one represent a color channel? And then if none of these scenarios are, um, are covering it, then I have a completely custom import. So um, I would say like we, <laughs> I very rarely, if ever, I don't know if I've ever run into a case where I couldn't get the data from an in, in, imaging instrument into a Revis. It's, we really support the import of lots and lots of different files and um, being able to import files like TIFFs and JPEGs and bit, I mean, I imported that milk picture from my cell phone. So being able to import files from anywhere and be able to control how they're assembled it means you can pretty much get get the data into the Arivas environment from anywhere. Okay, brilliant. Um, question here from Lindsay, and she asks, um, you talked about the capability to handle and visualize and analyze large data. Um, what's the limit or the biggest, the, sort of the biggest image size you've had? Uh, that's a great, great question. Uh, there is 
some kind of upper theoretical limit. And it was computed. It was told to me it's some weird name. It's not petabyte. It's like femto mega gigabyte. I have no idea what it is, but there's some upper limit. We really, there, it really exists. But in practice, uh, you know, I personally have worked with data sets as big as 12 terabytes. And I will say that the performance of the software was excellent, stable. Uh, I was able to do the things I needed to do with those images. Um, I will say I had multiple 12 terabyte images, you know, open on my desktop at once. So probably the most amount of data I was accessing at one time was maybe something like 30 plus terabytes. And um, yeah, uh, the software was was really stable and I'm able to focus in on portions of the image, uh, parameterize pipelines. Um, we've done quite a bit of movie rendering and screenshot rendering from from these these really big images. So let's let's say for me it's something around um, 12 terabytes in a single image. It's maybe over 30 terabytes in a session. And I think our development team in in Rostock has had their hands on a single image that was um, a bit bigger. It might be on the order of uh, 15 or 16 terabytes. Okay, brilliant. Um, and question here from Laura, and she asks, um, can you also handle time-lapse images to do something like tracking over time in 3D? And can you also measure intensities or other features along a track over time? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a, that's a great question, and I think uh, we, we had a little bit of debate about whether we should cover the um, tracking stuff in this webinar, and because we all we all like it very much, it's really cool. But we thought it might be a little bit too much uh, for the webinar. But we can absolutely do tracking in 3D. Um, maybe I can make make Vision 4D track track for us uh, quickly quickly here. I will. I have to say that. Um, um, Vision 4D is really good at working with time series. It's it's this is a real strength of the software, and I we should really do a webinar that's specifically about about the time series uh, in the future. So this this one is a time series, and so we got all these these objects wiggle waggling uh, around in here. Let's see if maybe I can compute some something for you uh, quickly. I'm gonna this might be a little bit time consuming to compute this mean filter, but I compute it anyways. So there's a little progress. A little progress uh, indicator here and then boom i got all of these little hopefully i get all these little red objects let's see <laughs> we'll see okay so i got i got a bunch of a bunch of objects and then i'm going to do a tracking operator so we have an operator that i can i can insert into the pipeline and i can parameterize it and now exact what it's done is it's tracked the movement of these objects uh in 3d so if i flip over to the the, our 3D viewer. There's a bunch of yeah, maybe like not like ideal tracks because um, please, I'm just doing this like on the fly. Okay, so uh, please please forgive me there. And I'm going to change the lighting so that it's a bit easier for you to see. Hopefully the objects. So I'm going to add some shadows and some. So this this red object. Now you can see we have its 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 position, its track computed through time. And so what we can do is go to the let's go to the uh, table. There's all kinds of cool things uh, I would love to show you about Vision 4D that it's you know it's hard to can't really show it to you in the in a in a one hour webinar but now I get to show you some stuff so this is kind of fun so here's the track so I can I can click right on this image 
and interact with the uh, with, let's let's store these. Why not? So I'm going to take I'm going to take it all the way. So I'm going to complete. Whoa! All right, we got lots of segment surfaces. I'm going to let's just view them as centroids for now, and let's let's catch this track. So I'm going to really click on that track, and I'm going to group all of these. Uh, I'm going to group all of the results by the track. So this object lives on a track. It's called in this case track number three. And the red object is represented in time by all of these segments. And so what I can do is I can go over to what we call um, track uh, timeline view. And we could do something like, let's look at its volume, uh, volume over time, something like this. So for this object, now I'm computing its volume over time. And maybe the, the reason why it's decreasing is due to, because I didn't photo bleach correct the image or something like that. So there's probably a reason for it. But my point is, is that you can absolutely look at the property, track the objects through time and uh, access their properties through time. Okay. Um, this question from Kieran kind of um, follows on from that. And um, you, you said it's possible to export videos of your 3D data. So how customizable is it? Uh, quite. So uh, again, this is something that I could do. I could do an hour. We could easily do a webinar on the video, video export stuff. So, and it's something that I personally find really fun. So if you'd like to, if you like to tell stories about the data uh, in the movies, uh, Vision 4D is a really uh, good, good tool for that. Um, so uh, let me show you what, what uh, the interface looks like uh, Briefly, so I'm gonna I'm gonna get get rid of the spindle, uh, this this data set for a second, and we're gonna go just focus on let's focus on this one. So, if we take our little cell of interest, let's put all of our colors back on, and we'll make it. Let's make this blue again, and then let's look at it in 3D, and let's turn off all of the segments, and let's change the lighting. So as you can see, there's lots and lots of controls and I know where they all are. So I, it's, you know, it's easy for me to go around and click on all of the, all of this stuff. Uh, so I'm, I'm not trying to make it look easy. It's just, it's, it, it it's, it's, in, I would say it's completely discoverable. Um, once you, once you know where all this stuff is, then it really becomes easy. So let's, let's have a look at the storyboarding tool. So we have a, we have a storyboard. Oh, let's see what this looks like. Oh, I like that. I like that a little better. Okay, so let's look at the storyboard. So we have this storyboard tool, and it works like um, you assign keyframes. And then what Vision 4D does is it interpolates between the keyframes. So let's say we want to have this sort of you know angle on top view as a keyframe, and then let's say we want to do something like um, let's barrel roll our way into the cell. Okay. Uh, like everybody at Revis is laughing right now because I, I always am doing something crazy like barrel rolling my way in like Star Wars style into the <laughs> into the cells. Okay, so let's say we want to do something like that. So we want this to be the first keyframe, and I just double click on it, and I'm there. I'm really at the keyframe. It just it just loads up the visualization settings, and I click here, and I'm really here. What Vision 4D does, if I hit this play button, it does a uh, interpolation between the first keyframe and the second. And then what Vision 4D enables you to do is control that transition. So you can control how long it's gonna take 
You can control whether the camera moves in a linear way, accelerated and decelerated way. And these are really great ways of focusing on objects and building tension in your movie uh, and all this kind of stuff. Um, you, you have complete control over, say, uh, say we want to hide the, we want to fade the red channel out. So I might want to add a keyframe where I faded the red channel. So now when I play the preview, I get the barrel roll. And then when we get close to the chromatin, then all of this red stuff is going gonna, is gonna to fade away. And so I, I, may, I may want that fade to happen more quickly. So in that case, I would just go to the transition and I might make it, you know, instead of a five second transition, I can make it a two second transition. And then another thing that's, I would say, uh, that makes storyboarding movies really easy in Vision 4D is that you can edit these keyframes really easily. So you see exactly what they are and you might say, huh, I really don't want to have the red channel showing in this one anymore. So what you could do is just double click on it. You reduce it and you might even say, eh, forget it. I don't want the blue channel either. So we take those away and we right click on it and we replace it. So in Vision 4D, you have this visual uh, uh, indicator of what your movie's gonna look like. You have complete control over the transitions and you can you can edit very easily the keyframes. I think it's a very uh, logical and intuitive approach and we get quite a bit of feedback from our customers about this being a really good feature uh, in, inside of Vision 40. Okay, well, um... That's all the questions we have for you, Chris, and that brings us to the end of the seminar. Um, thanks again, Chris. That was a fantastic presentation and uh, a great discussion. And thanks also to our sponsor, Arivis. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you've enjoyed the seminar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the seminars page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There you can also see the other webinars we've lined up for you in Bite Size Bios Webinar Festival. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at Revis and Bite Size Bio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.